there's been a lot of focus on you know, what's happening in the lung, what's driving systemic inflammation. Although this is technically acute respiratory distress syndrome, it's uh, an atypical form of it. They just have really low oxygen levels in their blood. Why? Well, the Italians just came out with the first post-mortem analysis that found that almost everyone who dies of COVID-19 has blood clots in the small arteries of their lungs. And then, you know, after that, now they're saying, oh, 30-year-olds are getting strokes. What causes a stroke? Blood clotting. So it it's starting to look like this is actually a, mainly should be viewed as a blood clotting disorder. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Seam Lunds, and our guest today is Chris Masterjohn. Chris has a PhD in nutritional sciences and is currently doing independent research. In this episode, we're going to talk about what kind of nutrition and nutrients could help with the coronavirus. Chris has done a lot of research about it and he talks about only the current state of science. We're not making any medical claims nor giving medical advice. It's only educational purposes and the information itself could become outdated once we get more studies done in the future. If you want to learn more about these topics, then definitely check out Chris's free newsletter where he gives frequent updates about the new research as well as uh, the strategy that he himself does. And he also has a food and supplement guide for the coronavirus, which you can check out at the show notes of this episode at seamland.com. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Sim. It's great to be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good to talk with you. So uh, how has your life been affected so far? by the pandemic has your life <laughs> has your life changed in any way or what's it like you know being at the epicenter of the uh situation like you're in new york am i right yeah uh i would say turned upside down completely um so from i, I would say the early the leading indicator of this before i really realized how big of a thing it was going to be was that my revenue from all my business activities started declining in february very substantially and then basically dropped to zero at mid-March. And that was, March was around the time where it was really starting to pick up in New York. But it, in the city, in New York City, it picked up um, like so rapidly. Like if you look at the data, um, we basically in- instituted the lockdown measures within 10 days of having a meaningful number of cases that made it clear there was an outbreak. Mm-hmm. And within those 10 days, so the, the data seemed to indicate that if you do nothing, you wind up with an ep- exponential curve of exponential growth in cases and deaths. But if you institute a strict lockdown, whenever you leave that exponential curve is where you stay. So if the exponential curve brings you up to 400 deaths a day and you institute the lockdown, you will continue to have 400 deaths a day until, until and unless the lockdown measures bring the transmissibility below one person being able to infect one person, right? If, one per- if each one person infects on average another one person, just continues indefinitely wherever it is. Um, and if the healthcare status stays the same, it just never stops. Um, and so the lockdown measures seem to be roughly sufficient to bring it down to the point where one person infects one person. So we just basically continue at this, at this point. Um, and because population density is so... So I don't believe New York City got hit so hard because it's a travel hub. So in New York City, we had at least four independent seatings 
of the virus from completely different locations and travel events very early on. Um, and that led to us getting an, getting multiple outbreaks within the city very early. And then, um, and then because we were early, uh, once, because of the population density, once we found out where we were, we had almost no time to prevent that exponential growth from going up. So, you know, the leading indicator for my personal life was the money slowing down. But then, you know, once the lockdown measures were instituted, basically my whole life routine got turned upside down. So, you know, my gym, I, I valued having my gym around the corner from me for a very long time. It's a daily habit to get up in the morning, do a couple of review things while I have some coffee, go to the gym and do some cardio, then later go back, train with my girlfriend, stuff like that completely gone. Um, you know, being more or less locked in the house all day is uh, terrible psychologically. <laughs> yeah. You have to find all kinds of ways to mitigate that and manage that. Um, and so, you know, the only thing that's better in New York is that if you do go for an aimless drive in which you do not get out of your car for the first time in my entire life in New York City, it's not that bad to drive. Because not, not that many people yeah. are on the road. That, that's the one thing that's better. Um, you know, I don't, I, I didn't grow up in New York City, so I don't know, I don't personally know a lot of people that are affected. But, um, but my, my girlfriend knows uh, two, two people in the building where her parents live have died already. Um, the uh, close family friend died at 38 years old with no oh. known pre-existing conditions. 28 year old from her high school died. I don't know the circumstances around any pre existing conditions. Um, so it's, you know, it's very significant. And then, of course, depending on where you live, maybe all you hear is ambulances. So um, where I was living in a quiet residential area and I just moved actually because my lease was up and I had to move for various reasons. Um, so where I was, you know, you only heard an ambulance a few times a day. Um, but in some neighborhoods you, where if you're, especially if you're close to hospitals, you hear them every 10 minutes. Um, and now actually, and now I'm living in Manhattan. And so you can hear at 7 PM, ev everyone stops and cheers for the healthcare workers. Hmm. Um, which is interesting. I, I have no idea how the healthcare workers feel about that, but <laughs> people are trying to support them. So yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, life is completely different in a way. For me, I, I, I live like in the countryside, so I haven't changed almost anything. Like I, I can still go outside. And uh, that's one of the biggest kind of fortunate things. Uh, I think a lot of people begin to appreciate more, like uh, getting access to nature and the fresh air and sunlight and uh, food and those sort of things. Yeah, so I, I do make sure to go outside every day for 20 minutes. It's just, you know, you go outside and you don't really go anywhere and if you're around a lot of people you wear a mask and if you're not you try to stay six feet away from whoever's going down the street so it's a different outside experience but i do think that um the diff even that amount of going outside is like really critical for mm. mental and physical health yeah what do you what do you think about the the kind of the current projections about uh, the total uh, death rate is going to be like initially they say that it's going to be like millions of people dying but now they're kind of retracted a lot of numbers and it's going to be like very similar to uh, like previous epidemics i don't think anyone has any clue what the death rate is going to be and i think it's completely contingent on what happens so 
Um, I mean, first of all, it's, and this is one of the, this is one of the really difficult things. I, I, I pity anyone who's involved in managing the public health policy because if they do it right, they'll prevent the deaths and then they'll get blamed for overreacting because look, no one died. And if they do it poorly, then, um, then, you know, everyone will just be focusing on how poorly they did it and everyone died. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure anyone in that position is like, let's hope we get blamed for overreacting. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, quite obviously, uh, with, so, you know, the, the way, the way, basically the way this happens is there's a certain amount of, in, of transmissibility that is intrinsic to the virus. Some viruses spread more easily than others. And then there's a certain likelihood that people will die. Um, the, but then there's all sorts of mitigating factors. So like the health of the population, the health of the individual has a big influence on whether you die, but also the transmissibility is uh, not just intrinsic to the virus. It's also critically contingent on the number of social contacts in the society. So if you have a virus that is infinitely transmissible and you will infect everyone you encounter, if you're stranded on a desert island, you have no epidemic. It's just you, right. you know? Um, so the thing is, the, the, the lockdown situations have basically dramatically reduced the number of social contacts. Um, and so uh, that is a major factor that is reducing the number of deaths that would otherwise have occurred. But then there's all, you know, there's, I think it's completely and totally unsettled what the number of people infected are. Like we still don't, no matter how, despite the fact that studies are being published, um, no one can really agree on the methodology of how to estimate the number of people who are undetected cases. And so that's leading to a whole argument about, um, you know, what is the actual case fatality that the estimates are going to go up and down. But the thing is, like, we still don't have z any data whatsoever on the ability on the ability to become immune to this. Mm -hmm. So some people are projecting herd immunity, but you can't have herd immunity to something that you don't get immune to, and no one knows if you get immune to it. Right. You know what we do know is that people who have had it, if you isolate antibodies from their blood, the stronger the case they had, the more effective those antibodies are to neutralizing the virus in vitro. Well, okay, how long does that last, number one? Number two, no one's actually shown that those people can't get infected again. You know, number three, on and on. So, um, so I, I think that, I think it's a complete open, like if you can develop herd immunity and there are, and there are a very high number of undetected cases, then yeah, the, 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 the lower projections of how many people will die will be correct because way more people than we are than we think have it have it and so the population will get saturated at herd immunity faster than we ever thought with fewer number of people be becoming symptomatic and a few number of those dying but if the people but the if the people who are arguing that there's a high number of undetected cases if they're wrong and the number of undetected cases is lower than some of those people are saying and if you and if immunity doesn't develop or if immunity yeah. doesn't last more than three months then there's no way we'll hit that herd immunity point. We just never will hit the... I mean, look, look at something like the flu. Like, there's not really herd immunity to the flu. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, that there is... Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some level of, of, of immunity. Like, I'm sure if we had never been exposed to flu viruses, we'd have a much worse case. 
but you wouldn't say there's herd immunity to it in the sense that the flu virus just mutates enough or comes back around enough and there's not enough immunity in just every in temperate latitudes every year there's a flu season and in uh, more hotter environments there's year-round flu season um and so it you know it there's no reason to think that it won't wind up like that you know it, it could wind up with a high easily saturated herd immunity could wind up with no herd immunity and seasonal outbreaks or um or but or uh you know year-round transmission um but the thing the critical thing that we don't know is that the the world economy is basically being destroyed day by day by the lockdown situation which absolutely cannot go on for i mean some people are saying well this goes on until we have a vaccine um the the optimists are saying there will be a vaccine in 18 months but there's no evidence there will ever be a vaccine because yeah. there is no vaccine for for any other coronavirus ever no one's ever been successful with it um and we still don't know whether you can get immune to this. Like, if you, yeah. can't, if you can't get immune to it by having it, then why, you know, why would you get immune to it by having a vaccine? So that's a completely open question. Um, and at some point, the economic pressure is going to have to cause people to yield and say, like, to, like at some point, we have to balance the fact that, like, the suicide rate is so high from financial destruction and social isolation that it's rivaling the number of possible deaths yeah. from COVID at some point, we're going to say like, look, we got to go backwards no matter what. And then what happens to the infectivity and the, um, and the case fatality rate and stuff like that. So it's, I just, you know, the models represent the possibilities. They're always changing as new data comes in. There's always models saying bigger estimates and lower estimates, but there are so many key fundamental questions that no one knows the answer to that, at this point, we just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the uncertainty is the biggest <laughs> danger to this, and yeah. uh, also because the biggest source of like anxiety and fear. Like, we yeah. we we haven't faced this kind of a virus before, or like this kind of a, you know the, this kind of a strain and so on. But uh, yeah, it's very and it also like, it can also mutate, so to say. So it come, comes back in a different form the next year or something. So yeah, well, it's it, one estimation of the mutation rate is that it mutates once every fifteen days. Um, it's not a, it's, you know, what, how, how often it mutates in a way that's favorable to greater virulence or transmissibility or lower violence or transmissibility is a different question. But in terms of finding a nucleotide change, um, there was, there was a paper in nature, which was the first paper to show it infects the throat, not just the lungs. One, one of the pieces of evidence they found that it not, that it infects the throat is that there was a patient who had a mutation in the population in her throat that was not found in the population in her lungs hmm. so they basically watched it mutate real time inside this person wow. yeah yeah that's pretty crazy uh i've uh, also subscribed to your newsletter which is really great you've been giving like free updates about the research and the studies uh, particularly related to the nutrition side of what kind of yeah nutritional interventions you could make or what we have even shown to uh, work uh, but we before we get into like that uh, can you also give a, like a overview a brief overview of what what is COVID-19 and uh, how does it affect the body yeah so um SARS coronavirus so coronaviruses there's uh seven known coronaviruses that infect humans um they are named after the fact that 
you got out a microscope, they have um, the appearance of a corona, which is actually, it comes from Latin meaning crown, but it's actually an a- uh, astronomical term that refers to like a halo effect around a star, I think. I forget the astronomy part of it. But um, that's basically caused by the fact that around the spherical particle, there's a number of, uh, there are many spike proteins that come out of it. They look kind of like spikes when you look up close to them. And those are the parts that bind to a cell and, uh, and find an entryway into the cell to cause an infection. So uh, 15 to 30% of the common cold is caused by coronaviruses. So coronavirus doesn't necessarily mean something is severe, although it is speculated by the, sci- the scientists and the relevant scientific communities that those mild coronaviruses that only cause the common cold now may well have caused something like SARS or COVID-19 in the long distance, long distant past, hundreds of years ago. Um, so uh, four of these coronaviruses are, we don't know the history of them and they're thought to have, uh, well, actually, that's not true that we don't know the history of them, but they're thought to be very old. Um, some of them hundreds of years old. Three coronaviruses have come onto this scene just in the last 17 years. And the first one was at the time called SARS coronavirus. Some people might call it SARS coronavirus one now. That's severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus. And then Middle East respiratory syndrome uh, was MERS and that's MERS coronavirus. And uh, at first they were calling the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, they were calling it the novel coronavirus of 2019. But then when they looked at the similarity to SARS, what they found was 80% of the genome, there's 80% identity in the genome and there is 87% average identity among the proteins. The protein identity is higher because um, you can change the genetics without changing the protein sequence sometimes. Um, and so with 87, with, you know, when I, when I say 87%, I just took all the single proteins and put them in the Excel spreadsheet and took the average. So it's a little bit higher or lower than that for each protein. Um, but with 87% similarity, um, and similarity in symptoms and identical processes of getting into a cell, they basically said, look, we can learn so much from SARS coronavirus, now sometimes called SARS coronavirus one, that we call this SARS coronavirus two, the sequel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so SARS coronavirus two or SARS-CoV-2, it could be abbreviated, is the virus that causes COVID-19, which is uh, coronavirus disease 2019. What this does, even in terms of the negative effects in the body, the pathology is has been evolving since it came out. Um, you know, the the first uh, sort of thing that came out was that there's severe respiratory problems. There's a distinct type of pneumonia that can be imaged on a CT scan. Um, many people wind up on a ventilator and die many people just wind up with the pneumonia and some respiratory distress. Uh, It's now increasingly appreciated that many people wind up with even milder symptoms or don't wind up with any symptoms at all while they're infected. And um, at first the focus was all on the lung pathology, but then someone showed that it, that it infects the throat that was published in nature. Then research came out showing that it probably infects the nose. One of the interesting things is that, um, if you look at self-reported data, the, the, the loss of smell or taste is the single most common symptom 
that is somewhere between 24 and 60% of people that is several fold more important as a predictor than anything else, fever, cough, chills, muscle aches, fatigue. Um, but if you look at um, the Mayo Clinic data, they just took 8.2 million clinical notes from 15,000 people who were tested positive or negative. A little over 1% of those people were tested positive. And, um, and they put the, all the, no, the 8.2 million clinical notes through machine learning analysis. And they found that loss of sense of smell or taste was 28-fold, basically was 28-fold times, excuse me, 28-fold higher in people who had COVID-19 versus people that didn't. But they found that only 3% of people um, had loss of smell or taste. So why are they finding such a small number versus self-reporting? And um, I think it's because, you know, if you look at the the peer-reviewed studies um, and if you look at the public health authorities, none of the clinical studies were saying anything about this. And the the CDC didn't start noting it as a symptom until a few days ago. So I believe that the doctors just weren't looking for it. And if the, if the patients mentioned it, it didn't wind up in the electronic health record. So it didn't wind up in the machine learning analysis of Mayo Clinic. But if you look at what people, there was, there was a study that looked at how do people self-report COVID-19 on Twitter? And it found that 20, 25% of people who self-report having COVID-19 on Twitter self-report having loss of sense, uh, loss of sense of smell or taste. And there was a UK mobile app where it was very rigorous because they, uh, they identified all the people who had been tested. They identified the positive and negative response of smell. And they found that 60% of people who test positive have this. And so I think that this has been the single most important symptom and has been completely neglected by the medical community until you know, just starting to change now. And then also the pathogenesis, uh, there's been a lot of focus on you know, what's happening in the lung, what's driving systemic inflammation. But there's been a lot of sort of assumption that if this is, uh, a, if, if people are having respiratory distress, it must be like a classical lung problem. And so the Italians were sort of foremost in recognizing that although this is technically acute respiratory distress syndrome, it's uh, an atypical form of it where people don't really have trouble breathing. They may in some cases, but the main effect is the people have no trouble breathing. They just have really low oxygen levels in their blood. Why? Well, the Italians just came out with the first post-mortem analysis that found that almost everyone who dies of COVID-19 has blood clots in the small arteries of their lungs. Yeah. So it looks like this. And then you know, after that, now they're saying, oh, 30-year-olds are getting strokes. Yeah. What causes a stroke? Blood clotting. Um, so it, it's starting to look like this is actually a mainly should be viewed as a blood clotting disorder. Um, even though the symptoms, maybe that's not the case, but the, the clotting might be driving the low oxygen saturation clotting might be driving the strokes. The clotting might be driving a lot of the other complications. Mm -hmm. And so the blood clotting would also kind of uh, explain why people with hypertension tend to be ex- more uh, suffering from it and dying from it more often if they have like, you know, these comor- more comorbidities like high blood, blood pressure and uh, blood sugar. Yeah. And in fact, I believe that high blood pressure is probably the driving thing. It might not be high blood pressure itself, but it might be the underlying 
coagulability of the blood, endothelial function, things like that, that cause high blood pressure, that also cause increased clotting risk that are, are contributing. But, you know, so, like out of, um, out of all the comorbidities with like uh, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, um, the people who wind up, there was a study that looked at people who wound up on a, on a ventilator and um, the only comorbidity that was associated, strongly associated with winding up on a ventilator was hypertension, not diabetes, not heart disease. Right. So it's like, yeah, the, the, depending on how many people you have, you will show that people are more likely to die from this if they have heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. But if you're looking at, at but you know, hypertension is really is potentially a blood disorder driving everything, the more it sounds like, the more it makes sense that hypertension would be the strongest one. Mm, yeah. Uh, but how does, the, how does the immune system work in itself? Like, uh, how, do, how does, you know, our bodies are constantly exposed to different kinds of viruses and pathogens and so on. Uh, so how does usually our body respond to these kinds of infections? Well, usually what your body does is, is constantly monitor the cell for signs of a virus. And when it finds signs of the virus, it, it mounts an interferon response. Interferon is named after its ability to interfere with viral replication. And it is the, you know, the first line defense, you know, after physical things that stop the virus from getting in. It's the first line defense to a viral, a viral infection of a cell. Now, um, these three most recent coronaviruses, SARS coronavirus one and two, two being the cause of COVID-19 and MERS coronavirus, they all share uh, a property where they undermine, suppress, and evade the initial interferon response. And then at least in SARS, probably MERS and probably COVID-19, there is then a late stage interferon response that is like kind of like the firemen who showed up too late to the fire, um, but then do more damage than good. Um, and so it, it seems what's happening is that there are dozens of mechanisms by which they either hide from, not I should say either, they do all these things. So they hide their key signatures that the cell would recognize as a viral infection, they hide it so, so they don't stimulate an interferon response. Then they make proteins that suppress the ability to make interferon. Then they make proteins that suppress the ability to respond to interferon. So there's dozens of mechanisms by which they're doing this. And then having having basically caused a low interferon response that is not responded to with the immune system as it should, that allows them to freely replicate and reach very high viral loads. And then sort of the backup responses, the ones that you would prefer not to have mounted the response to this, like this wasn't what you wanted to beat the virus with, but it was all you had because you didn't get your interferon response. You have very high in, uh, infiltration of the lungs with inflammatory macrophages which are uh, macrophage comes from the Greek for eating. It's a big cell that eats stuff. Um, you always have macrophages in the lung, but you get a very high, much higher concentration of them and much more inflammatory profile. And but they eventually build up to the point where they cause an interferon response that is too late and too big and of the wrong type. And that causes you know, massive uh, damage as a result of the immune attack itself. And so it's, it, there's an interesting animal experiment that was just published a couple of days ago that showed that although type 1 interferon is one of three types of interferon, although type 1 interferon 
stops the virus from replicating, it is responsible in full for the COVID-19 pneumonia that shows up on a CT scan. And it's responsible for half to two thirds of the lung pathology in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it's, you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place here where it's like, you know, do you suppress the virus from replicating or do you suffer the consequences of trying to stop it? Yeah. Yeah. And as I understand, then a lot of the damage also comes from your, this, uh, the cytokine storm that uh, the body kind of responds with the overreacting with the immune system and kind of then causes that additional additional damage. I, I, I would, uh, yes, I would revise that to say it's not really an overreaction of the immune system. It's really a dysregulated response, a dysfunctional response. Um, so, and one of the reasons I say that is because one of the key signature features of this cytokine storm is that certain parts of the immune system are suppressed. So lymphocytes, which include, uh, helper and killer T cells are suppressed and low lymphocytes, which is a low immune response is one of the, uh, primary predictors of whether you'll have a severe case and whether you'll die from it. Um, and so when you look at this, it's like some parts of the immune system are too active, some parts of the immune system are underactive, and it's really a dysfunctional immune response. Right, right. What are some other like uh, predictive uh, markers or something that also predict uh, how severe the case is or whether or not you're going to die from it? Yeah, so the overwhelming predictors are uh, low lymphocyte count, a high neutrophil count, particularly a high neutrophil to uh, CD8 T-cell ratio. CD8 T-cells are a sub- subset of lymphocytes. Um, and high levels of interleukin-6 or IL-6. And uh, these markers have been repeatedly found in a number of studies. There are other things that are clearly associated with it as well. And one of them is high levels of D-dimer, which is a breakdown product of blood clots. And so that an IL-6 can cause blood clots. So there, there was one study that, that showed that if you measure someone's IL-6 when they come into the hospital, you can have very good prediction of whether they'll wind up on a ventilator. But if you keep measuring their IL-6, the peak IL-6 reached before any outcome happens, they wind up on, on a ventilator. Um, now, that same study found that high levels of D-dimer, which is a blood clotting, uh, a signature of past blood clots, uh, are also strongly associated. IL-6 can cause blood clotting. So it, you know, it, it could very well be something like inflammatory macrophages in the lung with their delayed and dysfunctional interferon response lead to higher than um, you know, m- extremely high levels of IL-6. IL-6 drives blood clotting in the small arteries of the lung, which drives hypoxia systemically, and that leads to winding up on a ventilator, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are lots of other things that are correlated. Um, but even D-dimer, for example, is more of an, of, of an effect than a cause. It, even with blood clotting, it's the effect of the, it's the, it's the signal. You, you're looking in the past and you saw blood clots were here. Um, so the, the key things that seem to be sort of future-oriented predictors of what's going to happen later are the alterations to the lymphocytes so uh, and, and other white blood cells, so high neutrophils, low lymphocytes, especially low CD8 T cells, um, and the high interleukin-6. 
Um, but that's the thing is this is being looked at in the blood and you can't sort of like real time see what's going on in someone's lungs. You know, you can look at post-mortem analysis and autopsies. You can look at what shows up on a CT scan. Um, you, you could biopsy lungs, but like, uh, you know, I mean, basically for the most part, you're generally not seeing in real time what's happening at a cellular level in humans and lungs. And so you, we have to gain insights from animal experiments if we're going to gain t- insights in a timely fashion to try to find a good model of COVID-19 because the animals, you can directly look at what's happening in the lungs. You can take apart the lungs and stain them and stuff like that, um, even at a time point before that animal would have died of the disease. And so it's probably, I think, that the inflammation, this cytokine storm, is being driven by the inflammatory processes in the lungs. And when you look in the lungs, you're probably finding different markers. So for example, it seems to be that interferon is very important in um, when, it's ma- when it's induced by macrophages in the lung, but you don't see that happening when you look at someone's blood. So the IL-6 circulating in the blood, I think, is probably largely coming from the lung, and the concentrations are probably a lot higher in the lung than they are in the systemic circulation. Is I'm guessing. Okay. Uh, what about smoking? There are a number of studies that have shown that if you get COVID-19 and you're a smoker, you have at least double the risk of having a severe outcome or dying. And I suspect there's a, there's a number of reasons to believe that's an underestimate. Um, so it's probably much higher than double the risk. At the same time, there you know every single one of those studies has shown a lower proportion of smokers who have COVID-19 than is found in the general population. In Korea, that was a, you know, it was a few percentage points smaller. In China and the United States, it was like several fold smaller. You know, it was like you know, 15% in the general population, 3% in the study. So it's, it may be the case that smokers have a lower risk of developing an infection, but when they do develop an infection, they get a much worse outcome. And my guess, my hypothesis as to why that would be, providing it's the case, is um, there may be a, just a blanket toxic effect of smoke on the virus. It's not surprising. These viruses are very vulnerable to oxidative stress. One of the reasons scientists believe that, they, that there are thousands of coronaviruses that infect bats and usually do not make them sick is because bats have a very high metabolism that generates a lot of reactive oxygen species and the high, the high oxidative stress environment is toxic to the virus. So you want to mimic that temporarily on a surface level. You can inhale some cigarette smoke <laughs> full of, of reactive oxygen species, like full of them. Right. It's going to, going to cause severe damage to your lungs and to the virus. The lung damage will catch up with you in 30 or 40 years. In the meantime, you kill the virus. But if you don't kill the virus fast enough and it infects you, you're going to have two or three, four, five, six, maybe even nine times the risk of dying. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, quite funny. so I, I do not recommend smoking as protection against COVID-19 <laughs> or any, any other kind of health promotion. But, um, but yeah, it has conflicting effects. Yeah. Comes to show that some oxidative stress is still beneficial and uh, you, you kind of need it. Uh, but, but I also heard that nicotine... Well, yeah, hence your immune system. Yeah. Yeah, and makes, I, makes bleach. Yeah, yeah, like nicotine is also I heard somewhat useful. 
so nicotine is kind of interesting because uh, because if you look at studies on nicotine, I think it shows that um, nicotine is thought to, if I remember right, reduce the expression of ACE2, which is the protein that the virus uses to get into the cell. Um, but that's not the case if you look at smoking. And so, you know, nicotine might be a different animal when it's isolated from uh, than cigarette smoke. Um, and sm- cigarette smoke itself increases ACE2 in the lung. Yeah. So it's like yeah. two steps, two steps forward, three steps back. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you do smoke. It, yeah. It's a dance. You don't want to be dancing. Yeah. So let's talk about the nutrition then. Uh, yeah. So you did put together like a, this uh, comprehensive guide about uh, the current state of the research and uh, you do provide like uh, free updates to it. So if people are interested and they can definitely check it out, but yeah, maybe let's start with some of the key, key nutrients uh, related to this, like uh, vitamin D. It's a, like a kind of central component to the immune system functioning and it's also quite relevant to this particular virus. Yeah, so vitamin D, I think, uh, has... I don't know if you can hear the sirens, but this is what it's like <laughs> in New York. Um, vitamin D has... Vitamin D has some has some potentially conflicting effects. Up until a few up until the last week, there were no studies on vitamin D status and COVID nineteen. There are now two have been published, one from Indonesia, which is in Southeast Asia, and one from the Philippines, which looked at hospitals in several South Asian countries. And um, what these are showing is that keeping your vitamin D, your twenty five OHD at or above 30 nanograms per milliliter, basically, um, well, we don't know if there's a cause and effect relationship, but basically everyone in these hospitals, almost everyone in these hospitals who has vitamin D above 30 nanograms per milliliter um, does not have a severe case or die. Mm. Whereas when you get into the 20s and then when you get into the teens, you're getting a, a very large stepwise uh, many fold increase in the risk of a severe disease or the risk of death. Now there are some, there are some definite limitations to this. So first of all, we still don't know whether if you measure someone's 25 OHD now, does that predict what happens to their future risk of COVID-19? They're looking at the vitamin D levels that were either at the onset of symptoms or pre-admission without defining pre-admission. So, so they either don't go back that far or we don't know how far they go back. Um, and no one has done a perspective study by just looking at to take a thousand people, what are 25 OHD now, what happens to them later. We also don't know whether there's a cause and effect relationship. Just because one of the things you have to remember is that because the immune system relies on vitamin D, the immune system, when it's active, depletes vitamin D. So vitamin D supports the immune system, but the immune system depletes vitamin D. Mm. It's, it's a two way street, and it's always possible that um, the causation is the disease lowers the vitamin D, but even that is not mutually exclusive with taking vitamin D would make the condition better because if you have, but maybe if you have to maintain 30 nanograms per milliliter and your immune system is depleting it, you have to replace it in order to keep. So uh, I suspect that what's happening is keeping your vitamin D around 30 and six from rising to 10 to 20 fold higher levels that drives the severe disease and the death. Um, and that's based on numerous studies suggesting that vitamin D doesn't do anything to IL-6 in the context of low-grade chronic inflammation, but seems to lower IL-6 when dealing with something severe and acute 
like heart failure or uh, severe kidney disease or even um, acute uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, which might have some similarities to COVID-19. Um, however, vitamin D from animal experiments also appears to increase ACE2, which is the entryway of the virus into the cells. Um, ACE2 uh, levels in animal experiments do not just determine infectability, they also determine the severity of the disease. So for example, in mice, uh, mice, their ACE2 is not similar enough to humans to allow a substantial infection, but if you insert human ACE2 into their genes, they can get infected. And the more copies you insert, the more severe their lung damage and the sooner they die from the virus. And so um, it's, I think the, basically none of these studies that have come from South and Southeast Asia have shown vitamin D levels above 34 nanograms per milliliter. So we have no idea whether there's a U-shaped curve. And I think the, the hypothetical, you know, mechanism-based possibility of a U-shaped curve where increasing ACE2 when you get into the 40s and 50s nanograms per milliliter, until we have data on that, I would, um, I think it warrants extreme caution about going higher than we need to. So my current position is that we should keep vitamin D in the low 30s in nanograms per milliliter as protection. Okay. And uh, if, if a person, yeah, like, like macrodosing with the supplements is probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the vitamin D hammer, which is, you know, anecdotally, if you Google it, you'll, you'll find anecdotally people are, they get a cold or a flu and they just take 50,000 IU vitamin D that's probably not the approach to go forward with here. Right. And I also think like there's a huge contingent of people who are deliberately trying to maintain 25 OHD, 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. I think that's misguided in the first place and worrisome in this specific case. Right, right. Uh, but uh, vitamin D from natural sources like sunlight and uh, foods, they're probably benign. Unless you are like in this very well, I think it's yeah. I mean, I, there's no there's no chemical difference between these types of vitamin D and the transport from the skin versus from the gut versus from the food versus from the supplement. I don't think is meaningful in this case. Um, so it's really about the amount. And if you rely on foods and sunshine, you are less likely to be hitting doses that could put you in a worrisome place. Yeah, yeah, that for sure. And uh, you know, getting. Too much sunlight is probably too difficult for most people at the moment. Uh, what about vitamin C? That's also at like the moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so vitamin C, you know, is, is again, something that should be quite controversial. So um, on the one hand, vitamin C is absolutely critical to the immune system. Um, there is no rationale for being deficient in vitamin C in this case. And if you look at the data on optimizing immune function, um, you're, lo you're basically looking at 100 to 150 milligrams of vitamin C a day, preferably from food. That is attainable from food. It might be difficult to get as much fresh food at the current, in the current state, depending on where you live. Um, but you know, from food or a food-based supplement, I think 100 to 150 milligrams of vitamin C is a no-brainer. However, uh, I think megadosing vitamin C is a potential wild card because there are numerous conflicting studies about what it does to interferon. Interferon itself is a wild card. It restricts viral replication. But you know, with all the mechanisms uh, 
with all the mechanisms that these viruses have to interfere with the interferon response, um, who knows whether these typically interferon boosting supplements even boost interferon in those cases. That's unclear. Um, because the virus might interfere with the ability of the supplement to do that, just like it interferes with the natural anti-interferon uh, response. Um, but then also, you know, interferon may make the disease worse. And the thing is, like, um, a lot of people are like, oh, they're treating these patients with vitamin C. They're treating those patients with vitamin C. So first of all, I strongly support physicians in critical care experimenting with high dose vitamin C. Ideally, I think if they could publish data on what it's doing and what it's not doing, that would be excellent if it's controlled. The thing is like, they're kind of, you know, I, I, people in an emergency situation are throwing whatever they can at this. And so it's not always the case that people are like, oh, let's do a study. Let's put randomize these people here and those people there. They're just trying to deal with the the patient load. But I think it would be great if physicians who are in the position, given the healthcare loads in their hospital, if they have the bandwidth to properly assess the efficacy in a controlled study, that would be fantastic. But look, um, there's no evidence that anything they're doing in critical care does anything. Um, I mean, every almost every RCT that comes out, uh, I haven't looked at the remdesivir study that just came out. That might be an exception. But you know, up to this point, everything that people are claiming clinical success for has been consistently shown in RCTs to have no effect. And um, if you look at SARS back in um, 2003, 2004, after the epidemic was over, the World Health Organization asked the CDC to review all of the treatments being used. And um, in their review, even though they found 12 studies showing an interferon blocked replication of the virus, they three studies that were done in humans were, in their words, inconclusive. Um, and so it's like these things are being done because they think it will work, but the data is just not there to say whether it's working or not. So I think, yeah, in a controlled setting under medical supervision, high dose of vitamin C is great, but I think it's, um, I think generalizing from that to say everyone should take three or four grams of vitamin C a day is... Um, I don't think there's data justifying it. And I think there's compelling reasons to be careful about it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I would imagine that using it as a, like a prophylactic isn't necessarily going to protect you against catching the disease. Like it would only work uh, as a treatment in a way once you are already sick. And uh, even then you would have to kind of pay attention to the amounts, like I said. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We, like we were just talking about bats and their protection from coronaviruses. There might be an analogy here to um, the studies on vitamin C and, uh, and exercise response, which is mediated yeah. by reactive oxygen species. And there's you know, conflicting data on that, but there's a big school of thought that you don't want to jack antioxidants up too high because you could interfere with the reactive oxygen species response that mediates exercise performance you know, something here could potentially be very similar. I do think though that, um, you know, one thing that's clear is that the immune cells need to protect themselves from the reactive oxygen species that they make. And so that's the basis for why vitamin C and other antioxidants promote immunity. Um, so I, I do think that it does make sense that having adequate vitamin C may protect you from developing a significant infection. Um, 
but whether, but you know, I think number one, high dose in vitamin C at four grams a day is doing something different. I think maybe stimulate, maybe stimulating interferon response, for example. Um, and as you said, when you're, when you're in that zone, uh, it might, that might be a treatment only thing if it even works. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I will, I will add that one of the, there is one clear basis for trying to generalize to this, which is that acute respiratory distress syndrome in general, not as, not specifically as a result of SARS or COVID-19, there was a vitamin C cut the mortality in half. Mm -hmm. So that's a very good reason to hypothesize, well, maybe in the, maybe in the arts of COVID-19, it would do the same thing, but that's still radically different from saying, okay, let me do that as prevention. Right, right. Yeah. So as a, as a preventive treatment, people should just get the vitamin C from their food and uh, not deliberately try to macrodose vitamin C. And if they do come across the situation, uh, then they're probably already under medical supervision, so to say, and there they would be maybe treated with like uh, IV vitamin C or something. If they do come, what do you mean? If they well, if, if they do come across the situation, you mean if they ha know they have the disease? Uh, yeah, like you know, you know, they could take like spoon spoonfuls of uh, vitamin C at home, but uh, like let's say if they are let's uh, you know a severe situation where they ha actually have like. Uh, severe symptoms, then they're probably also in like a hospital or some uh, under other medical supervision. Yeah, if you have severe symptoms, you should be under medical supervision. Uh, but I also heard recently that like the FBI raided this clinic that was giving high dose vitamin C to people. Oh yeah, <laughs> and kind of confiscated the entire place. So it's kind of kind of kind of funny. Is there like any what else FBI? Are... Uh, what, are, what are we gonna do with them? Yeah. What what's, what's, what what are like maybe the dangerous side effects of too much vitamin C or doing it in the improper way? From the FBI's perspective, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, my main, well, so there are, there are concerns for subpopulations of vitamin, too much vitamin C in general. And that's basically for oxalate kidney stone sufferers. It could worsen risk because it can generate oxalate. For glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency and hemochromatosis, it can aggravate the condition. Um, but uh, but um, in this case, I think my main concern about the high dose vitamin C would be the effects on interferon. Hmm. Um, right. But, you know, but I, I don't see vitamin C as more dangerous than anything else that's being done. Yeah. I'm not even sure if it's more dangerous than like putting the ventilator settings yeah. too high. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And, you know, it turns out like the ventilators are making it a lot worse in some situations. And like most people don't come, come out of the ventilators alive. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I think is on that either. So, I mean, these people were already at risk of dying. But um, what the Italians had said was that, you know, the settings on the ventilator should be really moderate because you're not dealing with patients whose lung mechanic, whose mechanical uh, lung mechanics have failed. And so, um, and what a lot of people defending ventilation have said is, yeah, you always have to be careful of the settings you use. And of course, you don't use settings that are too high. And of course, you're going to damage someone when the settings are too high. So I think whether the ventilator is doing damage or not is sort of something that people who are more expert in the, the, the uh, 
use of a ventilator than I am should be debating. But, um, but I do think that it might, the, the whole ventilator thing might be based on a complete misunderstanding of the disease in the sense right. that, in the sense that if the lung mechanical function is fine and there is hypoxia driven by blood clot, then ventilation is probably not, you know, except, I mean, granted, I'm sure there are some people whose lung mechanics is failing at some point when the lung pathology gets severe enough. But in terms of the average person who has low blood oxygen saturation and is breathing too heavily and is at risk of respiratory failure, um, you know, that might be better seen as a, as a blood clotting disorder leading to hypoxia. And, um, you know, supplemental oxygen is probably a good thing, but blocking the inflammatory response causing the blood clotting is probably going to be the actual thing that is effective against that. And what's, you know, what's so, you know, if you look at the way this has been managed, like I mentioned before that, um, that the loss of sense of smell or taste may be the most common symptom as well as the most predictive one, but is in zero clinical papers and very, very, very often noted in electronic health records. Well, if you look, you know, when the blood clotting data is coming out, like there were at that time three studies trying to use IL 6 blockers, which would block the information, inflammation. Um, mm -hmm. Over 80 trials of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were registered at that time, and there were zero trials of blood clotting, of anticoagulants. And so it's like, even as we launch this massive research effort, uh, it may be like under completely misguided um, terms of what's going on in the disease. Yeah. Yeah, still a lot of things to know. <laughs> Um, let's move on with uh, zinc. That's also like a common uh, anti-infection vitamin or mineral. Yeah. Um, so zinc, um, if zinc works to get, again, uh, okay. First of all, we know that zinc is antiviral in other contexts. So in a common cold, zinc lozenges, especially zinc acetate lozenges used at the proper time are very effective against cold infections. Um, in the case of colds, what the zinc is doing is locally in the tissues of the nose and throat, it is blocking the virus from docking to the cell. We have no particular reason at this point to believe that zinc blocks the docking of SARS coronavirus 2 to the cell. However, zinc is an inhibitor of two key enzymes the virus needs to replicate once within the cell. And um, presumably, increasing zinc status would lower the rate of viral replication. Now, if you look at how much zinc you need to do that, it basically looks like you will not have that effect unless you have all the zinc you need to fulfill the zinc demand for all your cellular proteins because all those proteins bind zinc much more tightly than these viral proteins do. So what you want to do is you want to proactively raise zinc status as high as you safely can. And that probably has the, the most likelihood of preventing viral replication. As with everything else we've talked, there's no RCTs on zinc. <laughs> right. And uh, usually people, 
you know, people can get zinc from food as well. But would you recommend uh, taking a supplement or uh, would you just rely solely on getting it from food? If you're a big oyster fan, I think you could do it from food. But if you're not a huge oyster fan, then I think you probably want supplements. <laughs> and so um, my guess is going on the going on the idea that what you want to do is maximize your zinc status without going overboard into an unsafe territory. I think what you want is between 40 and 110 milligrams of zinc a day. I definitely would not go higher than 150 milligrams because that can have negative effects on the immune system. And you want to divide it up into three or four equal doses. Ideally on an empty stomach, if that makes you nauseated with some food, but not with any sources of phytate, which are whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes. Right. Given the fact that the virus does infect the nose and throat, it's probably a good idea to get a portion of that zinc in the form of a lozenge where the zinc will be released in the mouth and, al and be allowed to migrate through the tissues of the nose and throat um, before it gets swallowed and then distributed systemically. But given the importance of the lungs and the fact that other organs besides these, besides the respiratory tract are being affected, um, you probably want at least half that zinc to be delivered systemically through swallowing it. Now you can achieve that dose with oysters if you're an oyster fanatic, but you can't achieve it with food otherwise. Right. Uh, what about selenium? Um, I don't think selenium any clear role specifically shown for COVID-19 or any of the closely related viruses, but it has been shown with completely unrelated viruses in the past that selenium deficiency causes vulnerability not only to viruses, but interestingly enough, causes viruses to become more virulent. Um, and so it's, it's conceivable that that translates into, into COVID-19, but not clear to me through direct data of any sort. Um, but, you know, so the thing with selenium is I really think that half of people need more selenium and half of people get too much. Um, and so it's my, my position on selenium has always been that most people should test their plasma selenium at least once and try to keep it between 100 and 140 with maybe the sweet spot being around 120. And I don't think this virus changes that. Right. I, I do think if you're selenium deficient, it's going to compromise your immunity, period, full stop. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean everyone should be taking 200 micrograms a day. Yeah, that's right. Uh, vitamin A. So vitamin A is, is quite interesting. Um, my instinct is always to say A and D, A and D, A and D for colds and flu. Um, as we talked about before, there's data coming in on vitamin D. We don't have any such data. The risk for vitamin A is the same as vitamin D. They both seem to increase ACE2. Um, but... Although, so with vitamin D, we have, we have at least, at least we have two observational studies that can say, well, this target is pretty reasonable. And the target, 30 nanograms per milliliter, is also the target associated with all cause, lowest all-cause mortality in most studies. There's one outlier that was only published as a conference abstract that has been driving the opinion of many people that's 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter, but most Pretty much all the other studies show it's around 30 nanograms per milliliter. 30 nanograms per milliliter is also what's associated with the highest absorption of calcium from food, 
the best bone health, like across vitamin D metrics, that there's a consistent um, voice from the data that 30 nanograms per milliliter is the threshold for for uh, adequate levels. Um, for vitamin D, uh, for vitamin A, uh, there's no quantitative data. I definitely don't think you want a vitamin A deficiency, but you know it's another case where I would say it's good to not go any higher than you know you need for another reason, right. given the possibility that it could increase ACE2. Hmm. So uh, you're still eating some liver or have you <laughs> cut it out completely? Uh, I have not cut out liver, but I'm basically, I'm, you know, I'm basically looking at like a half serving of liver a week. If I'm also it with, four eggs a day and some butter. And if I haven't been eating eggs and butter like that, then I'll shoot for one serving a week, one three or four ounce serving a week or an average across days. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, you've also spoken about uh, elderberry. Yeah. So elderberry has been studied in the context of cold and flu, where there are three trials, two in flu, one in colds, that seem to converge on the point that a thousand milligrams, seven to hundred, seven to one thousand excuse me, 700 to 1,000 milligrams of elderberry extract, which is approximately the amount uh, concentrated from 25 grams of fresh fruit. It's a complete pain in the butt to try to <laughs> decipher what on earth people are talking about in the labels of specific products. But from the research, seven to 100,000 milligrams of extract, the equivalent of 25 grams of fresh fruit. That's the cuts the risk of cold and flu in half. In some cases, that's measured as a decreased incidence, and sometimes it's measured. In some cases, it's measured as decreased number of days spent with the uh, infection. In some cases, it's severity. Um, but there's a basically a, a consistent effect size of about fifty percent for that dosing. Now, there's no in vivo evidence, meaning in a living organism, an animal, let alone a human, on elderberry and COVID nineteen. There's no RCT, like everything else we've talked about. There's no RCTs in COVID-19, um, but there are there are some pretty good reasons to believe that its antiviral effects would translate to COVID-19. So, number one, there are there are three known viruses that enter the cell through ACE2. There is uh, SARS coronavirus two, which causes COVID-19, SARS coronavirus one, which causes SARS. And human coronavirus NL63, which is a lesser known, less consequential coronavirus. And of uh, elderberry prevents the docking of the virus to ACE2. So it's a it's a very unique mechanism shared by three known viruses, which which to me suggests it has a high likelihood of translating. There are Elderberry also has activity against other coronaviruses that do not enter through ACE2, and it appears to be by degrading the lipid envelope. All coronaviruses are lipid enveloped, so that may also be a reason to think that elderberry translates to COVID-19. Um, I'm actually involved in the design of a, a clinical trial that is on the path to being uh, registered that will test elderberry. So it'll be good to see what happens. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, looking forward to the results. <laughs> but, it, you, yeah. know, in, you know, in of itself, elderberry is also pretty safe. Like, it's not like 
uh, it doesn't have like as many side effects as other medication. Yeah, I mean, well, com I mean, comparing it to medication, there's a stronger case for efficacy. Like, uh, um, so like if you look at the the track record of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, they, unlike elderberry, have been shown to inhibit viral replication for SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that caused COVID-19. And so in vitro, they have a stronger track record. However, however, and there's a huge however, every single virus that elderberry is antiviral to in vitro, when it's tested in the clinical trials, it has an effect. With chloroquine, which, it, which, initially, which originally was an anti-malaria drug and is now, because it has immune suppressive effects, is used in the treatment of autoimmune conditions such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, every there are there every single chronic uh, every excuse me every single acute viral situation that it has been tested against it has been antiviral in vitro and either neutral or proviral in vivo. So in the flu and in uh, dengue or I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but uh, dengue fever. Um, it was antiviral in vitro and it did nothing in vivo in humans. And then for uh, chinkyunga virus, it was antiviral in vitro and in numerous animal models, it promoted viral replication. And so, you know, why might this be the case? Well, it's an immune suppressant. That's why it's used for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. That might be why you would expect conflicting effects for it. Like it might very well have antiviral act activity, but it might also suppress the immune system in ways that neutralize that activity. Um, and so, I think if you you know I think if you just look at the the track record of translating from in vitro to in vivo, elderberry has a stronger basis for testing it than than chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine have. Um, and the, the RCT data on those drugs so far is consistently negative. Um, you know, there, there, are, there, there were a couple studies that were not controlled that made it look positive, um, but the, the RCT data does not, does not look promising. Um, in terms of safety, there, you know, there are, um, in, in otherwise healthy people supplemented with a thousand milligrams a day for 12 weeks, there are no significant side effects. Um, so elderberry uh, appears to be safe over time and also has a, a long history. I'm not sure the exact history being used traditionally as an herb, but probably goes back thousands of years. Um, and, uh, and so it has that sort of, you know, it should be generally recognized as safe on that basis. Right. Um, now, I'm not sure about the safety longer than 12 weeks. Uh, um, a history person might be able to correct me, but I believe that the traditional use was mainly when someone was sick. Um, although I do know that, you know, it is a berry and it is just sort of traditional uses of food in some cultures as well. Right. So that might make the case for a safety uh, a long-term use safety. Yes. Yeah. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, then it also like lowers uh, blood pressure a little bit. So that, that can be also like an indirect mechanism that uh, can be useful. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I think um, would be very, so when I was originally making my guide, I was thinking mostly about the antiviral effects as things emerge, I'm becoming much more interested in the impact that these things have on coagulability, for example. 
mm. given how given the likelihood that that appears to be a you know causal factor in someone's severity and death risk would uh, vitamin k affect the coagulation yeah so interesting there was interestingly you would hypothesize that maybe people who are vitamin k deficient would be protected because warfarin inhibits vitamin k metabolism to have an anticoagulant effect however there was just a paper that came out that found that a marker of poor vitamin k status in the blood vessel uh called desphospho uncarboxylated matrix GLA protein or DCUCMGP um, that high levels of this, which indicate that the blood vessels don't have adequate vitamin K uh, are at much higher risk. And so it seems that vitamin K and this again is an observational study, um, but it seems that vitamin K may actually be protective through promoting blood vessel health. Hmm. And, um, and that makes sense because at, at the blood vessels preventing vascular calcification, for example, um, and having some other positive effects does to make blood vessels more um, tolerant of high pressure and more elastic. Yeah. Um, what about green tea or EGCG? Um, EGCG, I've mainly seen it suggest that EGCG would be beneficial by acting as a zinc ionophore. I think the concentrations that were used in studies that showed that used concentrations of EGCG that would be irrelevant when someone's supplementing with it or drinking green tea, except possibly if someone's sipping on the tea or sucking on a lozenge, you might temporarily reach high enough concentrations in the throat, um, which may be meaningful given that it does infect the throat. Um, and then there have been some computer modeling studies suggesting that EGCG may inhibit some of the viral replication enzymes, but those also, although they have you have found need less EGCG, only based on computer modeling so far, um, it's still a lot higher than what you would reach systemically if you were to take EGCG as a supplement or drink green tea. So I think it's probably only relevant locally where you could generate temporarily higher, high enough concentrations. Right. Uh, are there like any specific nutrients that you've been also paying attention to that uh, may show some potential or maybe somewhat uh, like dangerous or <laughs> negative? Yeah. Well, um, so one of the things that I did in the guide that you mentioned before is just screen supplements that people were talking about for their ability to stimulate ACE2 and interferon and various things that seem potentially harmful. And so I'm a bit skeptical of bee pollen and umka and uh, you know a handful of other things just on the basis of having antiviral activities substantially or primarily through promoting interferon. I am considering the possibility that these might mainly be a problem in the lung and not so much a problem if it's like a bee pollen spray for the throat. Mm. I'm not sure. It's just that the evidence on interferon all comes from the lung. Um, and the role of the, the, the role in the throat is less clear. Um, so I don't think that a spray on the throat would promote lung damage, but I'm not sure whether it would be net net good for the throat or not. So I am thinking about that. Um, I'm interested 
right now in doing some more research for possible inclusion of natto so that you know that there's on the one hand natto natto kinase is an enzyme that dissolves blood clots and that might be good from a clotting perspective natto um, itself is high in vitamin k2 which is the best form of k2 to reach the blood vessel so it's an interesting interesting to think about the possibility that natto might be of both of those potentially positive things. Um, and then I have like a mile long list of things that people have asked me to research and I'm like chipping away one at a time, but the questions come in faster than I get any of the research done. Yeah. So I'm just responding to comments. Thank you. I've added that to my list. I put it on my list and my list only gets bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, have you changed your diet in any significant way uh, as well? Or like, what do you, what are you going to do nutrition wise nowadays? I've changed it a little bit, but I would say that the um, the lockdown and economic effects have had a more significant impact on my diet than my choices to, based on promoting immunity have. Um, although I I actually am uh, I'm I'm a little skeptical of non packaged fresh produce that is intended to be eaten raw. Um, so I've kind of like minimized that in my diet because. Like in the uh, now, you go to the grocery store. So first of all, there's no Amazon Fresh and there's no Instacart. So that's changed my life. Now I have to go to the grocery store. And then at the grocery store, there's a bouncer who only lets a certain number of people in. It's, it's like an exclusive club where every time someone comes out, they let a new person in. You just have to sit on, wait on the sidewalk. Same thing at a grocery store in the New York. In the outer boroughs, it's someone who works for the store is the bouncer. In Manhattan, it's the cops. Um, and so then you go, and you're not allowed in unless you're wearing a mask. Um, and they give you a like the, at the nicer stores, they give you masks if you don't have one. <laughs> so then you go in, and of course, you know everyone's wearing PPE, and no one is trained in how to use personal protective equipment. No one's trained in how to actually use PPE. So, you, you know, like, like you, you look at people around and you see like people wear a mask, but they're standing next to people with their mask down around their chin, talking to them face to face. Um, or like people are like, uh, uh, you know, they're, but they just like touch this with the glove, touch that with the glove. Or like the cashiers wear gloves. They touch all my food that I touch with my bare hands. Then they touch every, the next person's food that they touch with their bare hands. They're just spreading everything with their gloves. Right. Um, so you go in there and you're like, well, these loose tomatoes that people have been going, mm, this one, mm, this one. Right. You know, did they wipe their nose a minute before that? Do I really want to like just rinse it off? And like, and so what I've been doing is like, if it has a hard peel and it's eaten raw, fine. Um, if, if I'm getting like lemon or lime and I'm going to zest it, I, I wash it with soap and water and rinse it, but I'm not doing like loose tomatoes and salads and stuff like right. that right now. Um, and then, uh, and then I am, I'm, I'm definitely relying and I don't think this is, is good for the disease risk or anything, but I am eating more processed food than I otherwise would in part just because ordering relatively healthy or relatively is a good logistic holdout just to have like readily available things that I can just eat out of a package is it's like kind of economically important for if um, I temporarily don't have enough food in the house and it's like a major pain in the butt to get to get some right. um, but then also psychologically so like magic spoon cereal <laughs> is a high protein 
low carb, low sugar imitation of all our favorite nostalgic childhood cereals. <laughs> I, I actually ordered four boxes of it because, you know, having ha- having the number of things that can give me pleasure in life reduced to only the things in my apartment, I find that having Magic Spoon cereal is like, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. like you know, that and Mario Kart and TV are coming in very handy. Um, but then, uh, but you know, what I eat is largely the same. So I have cut down on some of the supplements that we talked about being potentially negative at high doses. Um, I have cut down a little bit on vitamin A containing foods, but as we discussed, you know, that's, I haven't eliminated them. I've just, you know, reduced my amount somewhat. And then otherwise, um, you know, my view of how to eat now, apart from some supplements that would be helpful and not overdosing on others is largely the same as it usually is like a, a diet that's mostly whole foods, that's high enough in protein that diverses, diversifies across proteins, that it diversifies across uh, you know, b- various whole food uh, plant sources in terms of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, et cetera, cutting out anything that you don't tolerate that's bad for you. Although uh, I'm moderately intolerant to milk and I've just been like, screw it, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna put cream in my coffee. Like I do, I do notice that there, there's a high, a little bit higher inflammatory response to consuming casein. Um, but it's, but it's just, it's, uh, it's the psychological trade-off that, like, oh, and also I, I'm, I more nights than I usually would. I relax with a glass of wine. I'm just like, I'm very like, yeah, some of these things might be like slightly bad for me in terms of their inflammatory response. But, you know, so is chronic stress. Um, And so having a feeling of social isolation and chronic deprivation, I think is, is something you want to mitigate as you know, that, that takes at least as high importance as the direct physiological impact of any of these foods. So like, absolutely, you do not want to be a day drinker and drink six drinks a day. Um, but you know, relaxing with one glass of wine at night is something that I do most of the time now, as opposed to one or two nights a week. Um, but yeah, you know, fre- fresh, healthy, whole foods diversified properly is the, is the, continues to be the mainstay of my diet. And I don't see any reason COVID-19 just changes the one-on-one of that. Yeah. Like, uh, the psychological stress is very like overlooked and it does have like a major impact on your immunity as well as yeah. you know if you if you live in this fear and fearful state all the time then you're kind of <laughs> calling the demons so to say or something that you're yeah. kind of prophesizing uh, this uh, catching and making yourself more vulnerable and yeah definitely like you you can only you can only do the best you can when it comes to just eating healthy and doing some moderate exercise and getting sunlight and sleeping and yeah just practicing stress management and if it does in- include you know, some wine or even like some, you know, cereal with milk, then it's, it's, it's no problem. And actually it can be beneficial. Yeah, totally agreed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like we didn't cover like all the nutrients and the, everything that we could have talked about. So uh, where can people get access to the guide if they would like to get it? Yeah, if you go... If you go to, well, we can put a, sh- a, a link in the show notes for that, but um, on my website, chrismasterjohnphd.com, first tab menu is coronavirus, and that has the guide as well as my free email newsletter sign up. Right. Awesome. Yeah, well, we're going to put the links in the show notes. 
And uh, what can people learn more about you on social media? I'm at Chris Masterjohn on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm missing something. I'm on a couple other ones, but that's mainly what I'm on. Right. Well, that's good. Uh, last time when we finished the show, I asked like, what's this one piece of advice you wish you learned, you wish you learned sooner. But this time I want to ask like, what's, <laughs> what's this one piece of advice you wish you adopted before the lockdown or before the pandemic? <laughs> one piece of advice I, you, I wish I adopted before the lockdown. Yeah. Or, you know, it can be anything like habit or a thing or something or, or like a purchase or, um, I wish I had saved a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, who know, like um, the, I feel, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, could, it could go into yeah, like, I, inflation. So, <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, no, I, I do, th I do think now is that is the time to be economically conservative and, you know, anyone who, uh, at least from a business perspective, anyone who has been economically conservative and had an emergency fund developing over the last few years is going to do much better in adaptability and stuff like that. Um, you know, like I, I don't, I don't really, but I don't really have any regrets related to the virus in terms of what would I wish I had adopted. Um, I'm certainly happy that I traveled a lot last year hmm. because I don't know when the next time I'm going to do that is. So I'm I'm actually like I'm I'm really glad that I that I did that. Um in terms of uh virus stuff man I I don't know. I I feel like um I feel like just being adaptable is the right thing and um I don't, I don't really, apart from, apart from like wishing I had a, a bigger emergency fund, um, I'm, I'm pretty happy, uh, with, I mean, I, happy is definitely the wrong word. I, I'm not sitting here regretting, um, happy is definitely the wrong word. I'm not, but I'm not sitting here regretting things that I wish I knew like 10 days before the lockdown occurred. Right. Um, I, well, you know, actually, no, I'll give you a good answer. I wish that I had done a lot more research into the best home gym equipment <laughs> so that I would have made like really educated decisions at the point that I realized I needed a home gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you, have, have you heard of the X3 bar? It's uh, like a, this uh, resistance band type of uh, workout. I got an X3 bar. I oh, got right. X3 bar. It, it, it made, yeah, I got one. It, it made it a very simple decision that I could pay on six monthly payments with no interest that didn't even start until the 30 day return, return it at no cost risk was up. <laughs> um, and so I just figured, you know, I'll get it. If it's not, if it doesn't seem like it's worth $500, I'll send it back. Um, but uh, I haven't used it that much because I've had so so much going on. I actually had to move this week, and so like, um, and so like that, you know, how do you work out while I'm moving? But uh, um, but I, you know, I did play around with it, and I think it's I think it's a great replacement for my weight routine in the gym. Yeah, you can get a very good whole body workout with it. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty good. Uh... Well, yeah, it was some great talking with you and uh, we 
we may have to do like another podcast in the future yeah. once we get more yeah. data. But uh, I think so far this information is pretty uh, like uh, the current accurate uh, current state of the research. Yeah. Well, thank no. you for having me on. Uh, yeah, no it's, problem. It's, uh, it's, it's, you don't want to say it's been great in these circumstances, but <laughs> it's been a good thing uh, to discuss. And, um, and thank you and yeah. stay safe. No problem. I'll see you around.